All right, while they're making their way out, if you want to grab your Bible or grab a pew Bible, we're looking at Genesis 49 today. It's on page 42 in the pew Bibles, Genesis 49. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that we can gather together as your people this morning and we can sing songs to you and about you. Uh, We can offer ourselves in prayer and in obedience and in financial contribution and in conversation with each other. Lord, thank you for those who are serving our kids downstairs this morning in the nursery and in kids club. Lord, help them to... uh, Help them to teach the kids well. Lord, may the kids learn well. May they hear the eternal truths from your word, and may they understand them, and may they be shaping their young lives. Lord, uh, thank you for everybody who is uh, full of energy this morning, and those of us who could have used more sleep last night. I pray, Lord, that you'd work in our hearts and our minds now. Help us to uh, listen to your words, and I uh, pray that you would help me, Lord, speak correct words from your word. Pray, Lord, that you would work in the preaching of your word this morning, the reading, the studying of your word, the proclamation of your word, and the listening to your word this morning. Would you be uh, showing us truths from your scripture, truths of who you are, who we are, what you've done to rescue us, how we are to respond, and how we are to live our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are on the second to the last week of our series through Genesis. On September 23rd of 2018, we started into Genesis 1-1. Now, we've had lots of interruptions, but man, that's a long time to spend in one book. But it's an important book. It's a foundational book. Think about all that's taken place in our world since we started into Genesis, right? So September 23rd, 2018, President Trump was halfway through his presidency. Nobody like other than doctors and nurses, had any idea what the words coronavirus meant. Uh, We as a family had not yet met Owen. All of that has taken place, all that's changed just since we started Genesis. And yet Genesis itself, as a book, has not changed. When Moses wrote it down more than 3,000 years ago for us, it is still the same today, and it is still telling us the foundational things that we need to know in order to understand the world, understand our lives, understand the Christian message, church, all that. You could, you could hear the gospel of Jesus, the good news that he died for you. You could respond with repentance and faith, be born again, and spend all of eternity in heaven with God. But unless you know Genesis, the Bible's not going to make much sense to you. And even this world and your life is not going to make much sense to us because Genesis tells us how everything came about, why humans are different than all other creatures, that we have built-in purpose. We don't have to like make up purpose for our life. We've been given purpose. It tells us how God took all of humanity and, and narrowed the focus down to one particular family that today we see represented in our, our passage with Jacob, who's called Israel, bestowing blessing on his sons before he dies. All of that comes out of that foundational book of Genesis, and it it has been a great blessing to me to be working through Genesis this long period of time, and I hope that it has been a blessing to you too. I hope that the Bible makes more sense to you, I hope that life makes more sense to you, and I hope that even though the name Jesus doesn't show up anywhere in Genesis, you have been able to see Jesus present and active in the story 
of Genesis. Today, we look in on the last few moments of Jacob, or Israel's, life. Last week, we saw how the old man summoned the last of his strength and sat up in bed, and he blessed his two grandsons, the sons of Joseph first. Remember, Ephraim and Manasseh were brought in, and Jacob was going to pronounce a blessing on him, and you remember what he did. He switched his hands so that his right hand went under the head of Ephraim, and his left hand went under the head of Manasseh, switching the birth order importance. We see this all through Genesis, where the younger is is raised up as the predominant one in the family. The weaker becomes the stronger. The less impressive becomes the most important. And here in this, these last few verses of Genesis, we see it again. And when he switches his hands and he pronounces the blessing, Joseph is a little ticked off about that. So let me just remind you how we ended last week. This is Genesis 48, 17 through 20. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. We don't know how mad he was. We don't know if he was just rolling his eyes like, My dad, is, he's not thinking clearly. He can barely sit up in bed. But I do have to correct him because he's got it wrong. How, however that does, there's this... This confrontation, there's this rebuke. Dad, you've got the boys mixed up. But Jacob knows what he's doing. Verse 19, but his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also, meaning Manasseh, the firstborn, shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Now over the next few centuries of Jewish history, this would prove to be a prophecy, that it actually works out this way, that Ephraim the younger becomes the father of a tribe that grows in importance more so than Manasseh the older brother. Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim becomes a leader within the nation of Israel. And it became this common saying that if you wanted to bless somebody, like as you're sending them out the door on the, on the travel back home, you could say, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And Ephraim was always labeled first there. But as we see throughout the Bible, even Ephraim, the blessed one, the one who rises as a leader in Israel, even he gets to a point where he turns his back, or his, his tribe turns his back on God. He falls into sin and rebellion, and eventually Judah, who we'll see today, rises up as a new leader. His tribe becomes the predominant tribe in the nation of Israel. So let's leave behind the grandsons. And let's listen through the tent flap more as Jacob now gets prepared to pronounce his blessings on his 12 sons, the last things that this man will say in his life. This man who has been selected by God, chosen by God, sent on a thousand mile journey north, got a big family, came a thousand miles back, uh, lived through famine, migrated in his old age to Egypt. This man who even wrestled with God has only a few words left before he goes to meet his maker. This is Genesis 49 on page 42 of Pew Bibles. 
Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Remember Jacob and Israel, two names for the same guy there. Now notice, he doesn't say, Sons, gather around. I, want to, I just want to have a few last words with you. I want to tell you how much I love you. I want to tell you how special you are. He doesn't say that at all. He says, gather around. I'm going to tell you what is going to happen to you. This is Jacob speaking authoritatively in his role as a prophet of God, telling them what is going to be happening. So this is, there is a lot more at stake here than just the last few minutes with dad before he dies. He's going to go in order of birth. He's going to start with Reuben, the firstborn. And I think that when Reuben heard dad say, gather around, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you, Reuben probably started shaking in his boots. Reuben is guilty. He's got a dark history. He's probably stoically stealing himself or trembling in fear what dad is going to say in front of his brothers. Imagine his surprise when dad starts this way. Verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, my fr- and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent, that means the highest, in dignity, and preeminent in power. And can you see Reuben's face changes, and he stands a little taller, and he's puffed up with pride. He's like, hey, this is turning out better than I thought it was going to. Jacob goes on, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So remember, uh, Reuben uh, slept with Jacob's wife, not Reuben's mom, but another wife in order to try to steal the preeminent spot in the family to assert himself as the ruler of the family. That was months ago that we read that story, but... Reuben has never repented of that. Reuben has never broken free of that. He is still defined by his sin. And so Jacob looks at him and he basically says, the authority that you should have, the inheritance that you should have, the respect that you should have, that is due to you as the firstborn, you get none of it, Reuben. You have ruined yourself, Reuben. Now at this point, the next two boys... Uh, Simeon and Levi are probably shaken in their boots too because they are guilty also. They uh, were murderers. They murdered all the men of the city of Shechem. They stole all the women and children and the livestock and all the the valuables and all that stuff. And, And they too have not repented of that. They are still guilty before God and before their father. Verse five, Simeon and Levi are brothers Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Meaning, they're not going to be able to hold together. They're just going to be scattered throughout the nation. Ouch again. Harsh words from a dad who's barely got energy to sit up in bed, and yet he's going to pronounce these hard words on him. Remember, he's not just speaking as a dad. He's speaking prophetically here, these boys. They are mature men now, 
They look back on the foolishness of their younger days and it is still hanging over them. They are ashamed. They are a stain on the family of Israel. There's a couple of things I want to point out here. First, Jacob describes his lack of relationship with him. He says, I'm not going to take counsel with these boys. I'm not going to listen to them. I don't know what they, I don't care what they have to say about things. If I'm trying to make a decision in life, I'm not going to take counsel from Simeon and Levi. Now, this is wise because Simeon and Levi have showed themselves to be foolish and evil and violent and selfish. And if you're with somebody like that, you should be with somebody else. And if you got a big decision to make, you shouldn't be asking that kind of foolish person what they think about it. Instead, you should be like somebody as described in Psalm 1. Listen to these words, the beginning of the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So blessed is Jacob who doesn't want anything to do with the counsel of his wicked sons nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So rather than seeking counsel from foolish, wicked men, the wise man, the blessed man, is familiar with the word of God. He's thinking about it all the time. It is shaping him. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, prosper. As messed up as Jacob's life was, this verse actually describes him pretty well at the end. He is a man who has submitted himself to the Word of God. Now, he didn't have the written Word of God. That would come later when Moses starts writing the book of Genesis for us. But God had been speaking to Jacob throughout his life, and Jacob was learning to obey. Jacob was becoming a man who is described here in Psalm 1 as this fruitful tree planted by the streams of water. He would not be that if he was taking the advice and the counsel of his two foolish sons, Simeon and Levi. Now, secondly, history shows us that God is merciful even to Simeon and Levi. Because a few hundred years later, at the time that Moses is writing this down, the Israelites are wandering in the desert after the Exodus. God is setting up what would be called the religion of Judaism. Like, here's how you build the tabernacle. Here's how you build the, the altar. Here are the sacrifices you're supposed to do, the songs you're supposed to sing. Here's your holidays that you're going to celebrate. He's setting up all of that stuff, and he chooses the tribe of Levi to be the priests. So the guy who plotted the murder of the Shechemites and we're told, went in and slaughtered their oxen. His descendants are tasked with the job of killing animals and sacrifice to cover the sins of the rest of the nation of Israel. What a, what a beautiful and ironic way that God takes the messed up family of Levi and turns them into that priestly family. God is merciful even to them. So we've got three brothers down. Who's next? It's Judah. Now remember, Judah sinned terribly as a young man. He slept with his daughter-in-law, thinking that she was a cult prostitute, meaning he is engaging in intercourse with her, and it's an act of worship to pagan deities, not knowing that she is actually his daughter-in-law. But Judah, unlike Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, 
Judah repented of his sin. Judah was changed, and Judah became the leader, the de facto leader in the family. Fourth born, but now the leader of the brothers. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club, lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? You're going to say, how about them apples? That's a different kind of last words. There's no curse in there. There's just blessing and praise and, and honor. Really, Judah, you are a leader. Your brothers are going to bow down to you. You are like a lion. Now, hundreds of years later, we would get King David. King David, the king extraordinaire of the Old Testament. He would come from the family, the line of Judah. And then hundreds of years after that, from that same line, we get Jesus. And Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the conquering ruler of the world. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. As great as Judah is, how much greater is David? And how much greater than that is Jesus? As Jacob is saying these last words, saying that Judah, you are a lion, they are actually pointing to more than a thousand years later, about 1,500 years later, when Jesus comes and he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. All of this is connected. And then if we go to the last book of the New Testament, the the book of Revelation, John is receiving this vision of what of what the heavens are like, of what the future is going to be like. And there's this, this uh, mysterious, important scroll that's sealed with seven seals, and nobody in heaven is worthy to open it until Jesus shows up. And he is declared as the one who is worthy to open it. We're going to close our service with the song, Is He Worthy?, which is taken from that passage in Revelation 5. And in that passage, we read this. John, who still thinks nobody's going to be able to open the scroll, says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, speaking of Jesus, the root of David, speaking of King David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. How did Jesus become that conquering lion, that king of all kings? Well, just a few verses later, we're told that he is the lamb that was slain. And so it is by giving up his life and rising from the dead that we see Jesus assuming the title, king of kings, lord of lords, lion of Judah, because he was the lamb that was slain. All of that is wrapped up in these words to Judah. But Jacob's not done. He has more to say. The scepter, so like the royal staff, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from from between his feet until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So there's all this kingly talk, rulers, scepters, peoples giving tribute and obedience to him. Then it says this. 
binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now that last line we can kind of understand. It's not the way we would use language today to describe somebody. But it's basically saying that this, this, this coming king, who we know to be Jesus, a descendant of the tribe of Judah, that he is, he is striking. Right? Like his, his teeth are, are white. His eyes are penetrating. That's what that last sentence is saying. But what about the sentence before that? He ties his donkey to the vine, and he washes his clothes in the blood of grapes and wine. What is that? This is speaking of the coming rule of Jesus. And we, we don't even get to see this yet, but the coming rule of Jesus, where there is so much plenty that you could tie your donkey to the grapevine and it doesn't matter if he eats the grapevine and all the grapes because you've, you've got more than you need. Nobody in their right mind ties the donkey to the grapevine, especially what's referred to as the choice grapevine. But in that coming heavenly kingdom where there is no sin, there's no lack, there's no death, there's no need, you've got everything you could possibly want. It doesn't matter if you tie your silly donkey to the grapevine. We're told that the the coming king will wash his clothes in in wine. Now, obviously, there's some poetry going on there because if you want to get your clothes clean, you don't wash them in wine. So again, it's pointing to this abundance, this overflow. Hey, he's got so much wine, he can just wash his clothes in it. You know, there are people today that intentionally take baths in wine. Here's a picture. Amari... Sotomayor of the New York Knicks, so good player, now a coach, bathing in red wine, showing it off, saying, look at me, look how much money I have. I can fill a bathtub with wine and just soak in it. The coming abundance of the King Jesus ruling over the universe puts even silly Amari to shame. That's the point of those words there. Like, you can't even imagine what this kingdom is going to be like that's somehow going to come from, from Judah here. All right, let's go on to the next ones. We're going to blast through these pretty fast. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. I don't know what else to say about that. Moving on. Issachar is a strong donkey. Which I, I assume that's an insult, like it would be today crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, so he's lazy, and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. So this is God speaking through Jacob about the the tribe of Issachar, something that will happen in hundreds of years. As As the Israelites are supposed to be taking possession of the land promised to them, and they're settling in their regions, at some point in history, Issachar basically says, I'm good being a slave to others. Yeah, I gotta work hard, but I also get to rest, and I don't need to worry about anything because my masters are taking care of me, so I'm gonna surrender my freedom, I'm gonna surrender my responsibility, I'm gonna surrender even the land that I should be taking possession of, and I'm just gonna be a servant and a slave to others. 
there's a growing percentage of our American population that sees life that same way. I'm going to ditch my responsibility. I'm, going to, I'm just going to do as little as I can. I'm going to let somebody else take care of me. And if I'm a slave to that, so be it. At least I'm being taken care of. Verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a, a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. So Dan, he's a judge, and he's also apparently going to be a threat. Now, a few weeks ago, we were at Cumberland Gap National Historic Park, and I was talking to one of the rangers saying, okay, what should we do? Here's the family that we've got, the sizes, here's the weather, where should we be hiking, what should we be doing? And the the ranger that I was talking to, she was laying out, these trails are options, she says, but don't go hiking on the Boone Trail, which is this little connector trail. Because there's this big rattlesnake there that thinks he owns the trail. And he just sits in the middle of the trail in the sun and waits for hikers to come along. That's good advice. I don't think we'll be walking on that trail, right? So Dan here is described in that way. That he's a a serpent in the way, in the path. A viper bites the horse's heels and the rider falls off. Kind of makes you wonder why anybody would name their son Daniel. Right? That's too easy. Moving on. Verse 19. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. So, bummer for Gad, but at least he picks himself up and returns the favor. 20. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. So, he's going to be the dessert maker. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. And I have to wonder, middle-aged man Naphtali is called a doe. How does he take that? Probably would take it better if there was also drops of golden sun thrown in. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So we've got quick succession of these kind of minor brothers, and then we're, we're on to Joseph the guy who has rescued the lives of the family and of millions, and now we've got blessing being poured out again on blessed Joseph. Notice that the tense has shifted here. We've been talking about the future. Now Jacob is talking about the past. He's describing how Joseph has been attacked, the things that he's been through. He's been attacked. He's been shot at. He's been harassed. By whom? By the other brothers standing in the tent at that moment. An awkward moment again for this family. Notice also that Jacob refers to God as the mighty one of Jacob. He says the mighty one of Jacob has stood with, has protected, has strengthened my son Joseph. That my God has been faithful to my son Joseph. And Jacob, again, although the wording here is a little awkward and hard to translate, Jacob, again, refers to this God as his shepherd. Remember, the Egyptians think of shepherds as abomination, but Jacob has been a shepherd, his boys have been shepherds, and they think of their God 
as a shepherd. And so he doesn't care. It's the last few minutes of his life. He doesn't care what the Egyptians would think about the silly idea of the God of the universe being a shepherd, caring for his sheep. He knows that this shepherd has been with him faithful his whole life, and he's going to refer to him not only as the mighty one, but as the shepherd. But the main statement about Joseph, what is it? It's about that Joseph is a fruitful bough. It's a, a tree branch laden with fruit. Fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the walls. The idea of a, a tree on the, on the inside of a walled garden, and it's grown so big and so fruitful that you could walk by outside the wall and you could pick fruit from it. And again, that sounds to me like Psalm 1. So let me read it again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. That definitely describes Joseph in the later years of his life as he is the ruler, second in command of Egypt, saving the lives of millions with his good, strong, fruitful leadership. Why is Joseph a success? Because he has walked with God. The words of God have defined him, just like Psalm 1 tells us about the wise man. What else does Jacob say to Joseph? Verse 25, By the God of your father, who will help you by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. So he says, this is him speaking of himself in the third person. I am more blessed than even my dad was, but you are even more blessed than I was. It just keeps getting better after each generation for this family. So the blessings of, of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. Okay, so we're not just talking about worldly blessing. We're talking here about spiritual heavenly blessing. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. So blessing upon blessing upon the blessed, beloved son, Joseph. After reading through the last major section of Genesis, Joseph's story. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. He has been the hero of the story. Of course, these blessed words are reserved for him. And then last but not least, we get to Benjamin, the baby of the family. Just a couple years old when the other beloved son, Joseph, is carted off in slavery to Egypt. He is now a a young man, and uh, he's got his own family. But we have to wonder the one who was protected more than all the others, the one who was babied, the one who was never let out of sight, the one, did he grow up to be a mama's boy? Jacob says this, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoils. He doesn't mean this in a bad way. He means this as, my youngest is now a man's man. He is a warrior. He is strong. Centuries later, the first king of Israel, Saul, would come from the tribe of Benjamin. He would surround himself with mighty men, also from the tribe of Benjamin. In 1 Chronicles 8.40, we read this about the Benjaminites. The sons of Ulam were men who were mighty warriors, bowmen having many sons and grandsons. All of these were Benjaminites. 
And then the next king, King Extraordinary David, surrounds himself with a group that he calls the Mighty Men. We read this. They were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or the left hand. Have you ever tried doing that? Shooting a bow with your non-dominant hand? Or slinging a stone? I don't mean like a Y-shaped slingshot, but like a five-foot-long piece of leather that you swing like this. Imagine doing that with your other hand and being able to do it accurately. The Benjaminites are mighty, gifted men. Back to Genesis 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So it fits who they are, who they've been, who they will be. He's pronounced these blessings, as awkward as some of them were. He's done it with a weight of authority, saying that this is what will be true of them. Now the last words. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. It's quite the description. He wants to make sure that his boys know exactly what he's talking about. He's in Egypt. He knows he has moments left before his death. He says, you boys, I'm giving you the task of taking my body and burying it in this specific cave back in the land of Canaan, what we would now call the land of Israel. If we look at the map, we'll see what he's talking about. Red oval there is what we would call Israel today. Mamre is the the town outside that. There's a field with a cave that Abraham bought. Abraham is buried there. Isaac is buried there. Leah is buried there. Beloved wife Rachel is not buried there because she died on the road and is buried near Bethlehem. But, but that is the family burial place. Why does Jacob care? Why does he say to his sons, you're going to load me up in a cart and you're going to carry me, it's like 400 miles or something like that, and bury me in this cave? Why does it matter? Verse 31. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. A few things here. He uses the last of his strength to say, bury my body in this particular cave. Why? This is an illustration of the faith of Jacob, of Israel. His grandfather Abraham was promised that land as a permanent inheritance. His father Isaac received that promise again directly from God. Jacob himself received that promise again directly from God. When he says, take my body back and bury it, It's an act of faith saying, that is the land that our family is going to possess, and it is right for my body to be buried there. I believe that God is going to do it. It's a proclamation of trust in God to fulfill his promises. But what Jacob's doing here is actually more than that. 
He doesn't think that his body being there in the land of Canaan has really anything to do with his soul. He fully believes that he is a a spirit living in a body, and his body's going to die, and he wants it buried in the cave, but look at how he describes what's happening here. He says, he starts his little speech at the end. He says, I'm, I am to be gathered to my people. And we might think he means you're going to take my body and bury it with my ancestors. But that's not what he means because at the end we read this. He drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Meaning at that moment he's gathered to his people. When, when Jacob is describing what's about to happen and when Moses looks back and describes what did happen, his gathering to his people is speaking of the afterlife reality that Jacob, at the moment that he dies, is ushered into the presence of God Almighty and his father and his grandfather, Isaac and Abraham. So it's, it's not like he thinks that having his body buried in that cave is going to somehow affect his afterlife. His afterlife is secured here, but it is still an act of faith. Now, if you're a Christian, this whole idea of an afterlife and, and all that may not seem like such a big deal to you because it's familiar. But remember, Jacob doesn't have a Bible. He's got very limited understanding of this God of the universe and what happens after he dies, and yet he has faith here somehow. He knows that he is resting in the arms of this good shepherd who has been with him his whole life. He trusts that God is holding him fast, even in the afterlife. Do you have that kind of confidence here today? Do you know that no matter where your body ends up, if you're buried at Greenlawn Cemetery, or if you're burned up, scattered to the wind, captured by some crazy guy and buried in the woods never to be found? Do you know that that doesn't matter at all for your afterlife? And do you know that you can know today what your eternal state is? That by trusting in Christ alone for salvation, not in your own goodness, not in your family line, like Jacob could trust in his family line better than any of us, right? But he doesn't. He trusts in God who is his shepherd the one who cares for him. This last week I finished reading a book by David Paulison. It was kind of the last thing that he wrote before he died. And in it he's talking about how we as individuals, we choose in life who we're going to follow as a shepherd. And there's all kinds of options out there, but we all basically follow something or someone as a shepherd. And then we, we also have that choice when it comes to our death. Whose is your shepherd when you die? He says this, When we face death, we have the same choice before us as we have in every area of life. Who will be our shepherd? Psalm 49, which you've been talking about in the book, but we're not going to look at today. Psalm 49 is about the foolish pride of humans, and one line captures how life turns out for those who don't listen to their good shepherd. Then he quotes verse 14, Death shall be their shepherd. Jesus, who refers to himself as the good shepherd, longs to shepherd you in this life and in the next. Won't you trust him? 
Won't you, unlike Jacob in this foolish younger years, won't you just take everything that you've got for the rest of your life and just surrender it to him? Say, I trust my life to you, Jesus, a good shepherd. And then at your death, you're already in that mode. You trust your death to him, the good shepherd too. The other option, according to what Mr. Paulson is pointing out here, from Psalm 49 is, if you don't have the good shepherd as your shepherd at death, then the only thing you got left is death as your shepherd. And you don't want death as your shepherd. You want Jesus who says, as Daniel quoted earlier today, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are the words of Jesus, the good shepherd, the life. Won't you make him your shepherd? in this life, and in the next. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jacob and the end of his life that was filled with, with faith, even though there were awkward things that had to be said. It was, it was a faithful end. Thank you that he trusted in you, that he, he knew he was resting in you, that he proclaimed that you were his shepherd, and he was trusting in you. Thank you that he... He was trusting that you would hold on to him, that it was not his goodness or his family name that was giving him the afterlife with you, but that it was your goodness, your mercy, your faithfulness. And I thank you for those, those boys gathered around, and even though those were hard words, they would go on and, and they would lead the tribes of the nation of Israel, that chosen family that you have worked through now for thousands of years, continue to work through today. We thank you for them. Mostly, Lord, I thank you for Jesus coming from that tribe of Judah, being the lion and the lamb. So, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being our good shepherd. Thank you for being our life. Thank you for giving your life to give us life. Thank you for the way that all of the Genesis story and even the last words of Jacob point us to you as the good shepherd the life and the redeemer of our souls. In Jesus' name.